couple summers ago, it was the end of the summer in 2020. If you remember that year, I'm sure you do. We all remember 2020. And it's been a really challenging year. In particular, you remember that summer. It was a really challenging summer. You know, we were still in the midst of lockdowns. There was political pressure. There were things happening in the streets and in our cities all across the, the world. There was, there, was, um, there was protesting. There was uprising. There was all of this tension. And um, wherever you find yourself in the midst of any of those things that were unfolding in 2020, um, anybody with a heartbeat and a pulse would have looked at that summer and went, man, this summer is a pressure cooker in the human experience. Like everybody was feeling it. And I remember toward the end of that summer, you know, we still weren't meeting as a church, still weren't allowed to, to be in our venues. We weren't meeting on Sundays in large gatherings. We were in homes and I had not seen a lot of the folks that we normally see. But one, uh, one day I was out and I run into this police officer who had served uh, some of our Sunday gatherings before the shutdowns had happened. And I couldn't remember his name, but I could remember his face and I see him. And one of the, the customs that we have as a family is anytime we see a public servant, you know, whether it's a police officer or someone in the military or um, a doctor or a nurse or um, a school teacher, anybody that works for the common good, the flourishing of our culture, we go, how do we just honor them and love them? Because it's really tough job, um, a lot of times really thankless sort of job, right? So I see this officer in the midst of a really tough season, and I see him, I reintroduce myself, and I ask the question that I so often ask to our public servants, I say, hey, what's it like to be a, a police officer or a public servant right now, and how can we pray for you? And he was just taken back by it, and he's like, man, it's been a tough season, and we had a, a pretty extended conversation but I would sum it up like this, and I'll never, I'll never forget the sentiment of what we were talking about. He said, never in my life have I been more convicted that our city needs good police officers than right now. He's like, the, the city is just in a mess. He's like, we need followers of Jesus in spaces like this. The need is great. The culture needs us. But as the second half of the, the sentence or the sentiment that caught my attention, he said, the culture needs us, but I'm not sure the culture wants us anymore. And it's a weird thing to wake up in the morning and to put on uniform when you know you're needed, but you're not sure you're wanted. And he goes, and every day I'm just kind of out there in the midst of all of this. And I'm like, are they for me? Are they against me? Are they glad I'm here? Are they mad that I'm here? And he said, it is just a tension. And I remember that conversation with that officer towards the end of that summer in 2020. And I've thought of it a number of times as I reflect on what it feels like sometimes to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Uh, I look at our society, I'm not gonna waterboard you with the headlines. I don't want all of us to walk out of here in a grade three depression this morning, but wherever you are on the spectrum, I'm just telling you, you, you look at what's happening in culture and culture is falling apart. It is morally decaying at every turn. Institutions are caving in on themselves. The political spectrum is more divided than it's ever been, but it hasn't just stayed in the political spectrum. It's crept into our families, the family unit. Is falling apart, is under attack, is, 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 is being degraded, and all sorts of things are coming against everybody in the culture. And you just feel it, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. People look at the culture and you, you see the, the undercurrent, you see the moral pinnings of the culture are, are shaking, and everybody's trying to figure out what a solution is for it. And I'm convinced, and I really mean this, I'm convinced now more than ever. When the culture is decaying, followers of Jesus are needed in the public spaces more than ever. Like followers of Jesus who are faithful to Jesus are, are needed in the boardrooms 
and, and in the block parties and in your neighborhoods and uh, on the PTA and making big decisions. Remember Josh Willis, one of our beloved pastors for 10 years, at the end of last year, he goes, I'm feeling called into the public specter, uh, uh, sector. And I just remember going, hey, Josh, you're not leaving ministry. You're starting it just in a new season. We need followers of Jesus. In all of these spaces, the worse the culture gets, the more you're needed. I don't know if you really believe that or not, but these are the words of Jesus. Jesus looked out at his disciples when everything was sort of falling apart. And do you, do you remember what he said? He said, when the going gets tough, hide in a bunker. Remember that, remember that scripture? <laughs> anyway, when the going gets tough, look out for yourself. Make sure the culture doesn't get you. <laughs> no, he goes, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. City on a hill, they can't be hidden. You know, salt in their day was not just to make things a little more flavorful. You've heard me preach this a thousand times. Salt was a preservative in a world without refrigerators. The only way you kept meat from decaying was to pack it in salt. Jesus looked at these, these poor, uh, these, these like on the margin of society disciples and he said, hey, the world you're in is decaying and you don't stand at a distance, you don't throw lobs, you don't make your statement on Twitter and feel good about yourself. He goes, you are the salt of the earth. You get in there, you roll up your sleeves, you make a difference, you're the light of the world. The darker the night, the brighter the light. <laughs> And Jesus goes, this is how you've been created. And so I look at the culture and as followers of Jesus, there should be something bubbling up in us right now going, oh, we were made for this. You're needed. But what do you do when you don't feel wanted? <laughs> Have you ever felt that tension where you go, I, I do think Christians are needed in this space, but what if you're not wanted in that space? What if you're not received in that space? Do you get louder? Do you shrink back? Do you pull away? Do you, do you hide? And I love the words of Hebrews chapter 10. We do not belong to the ones that shrink back. You're salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Romans 8, 19, the whole creation is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. It's the word of the Lord. The worse it gets, the more you're needed, but we're not always wanted. Here, here's the reality, and I'm not feeling sorry for us. Like, pl please don't just like pile this on and go, yeah, we're the victims. No, that's not all what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is the reality. You know, 50 years ago, you could be a follower of Jesus in the world, even if they didn't agree with you, might admire you. It's noble. Your value system's good. And then we went from being admired to being a little weird, a little strange. And here's the truth now is if, you're really serious about walking with Jesus, really serious about holding the word of God as truth and authority in your life. You're usually not gonna be admired. You usually won't be seen as weird. A lot of times you're gonna be seen as being harmful. Hey, your views are harmful to where culture's moving. Your views are harmful to creating peace. Your views are harmful. And guys, if you have not seen it, I'm telling you, you're gonna see it. And it's one thing to know you're needed, but what do you do when you go, I don't know if I'm wanted, and as Christians, we tend to behave really badly when we find ourselves in spaces like this. We tend to get in our own little Christian cul-de-sacs and go, okay, we'll stay together, we'll be together, we'll be, and, and we forget about the world, or we take the energy of the world and the force of the world, and we try to baptize it with Christianity and go, we'll take it. I'm like, no, that's not it either. 
And this is what I love about Daniel, and this is why we're sitting in Daniel all summer, is it's deeply practical, but it is a prophetic call for followers of Jesus to stand firm and to love well in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile towards what we think and believe and how we live. It's an invitation to stand firm for Jesus, but to love and live well in the midst of a culture that's getting increasingly hostile. And just week by week, we're just digging in going, okay, what do you have for us, Lord, in the midst of us, in the midst of this? And so I wanna give us just a little bit of a recap of where we were last week, just so our hearts can get back in the flow. I know all of you have been meditating on Daniel day in and day out for the last seven days, and you've got it memorized, but for the three in the room that don't, let's just kind of catch back up with where we've been. So Daniel chapter one, it picks up after God's people had been in the promised land for 490 years. God had brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. Things were going great, but they began to forget the ways of the Lord. And so for 490 years, God just, he's reminding them, hey, if you don't walk in my ways, I'm gonna raise up the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come remind you of what you've been made to do and they're gonna bring you out of the promised land into 70 years of exile. So for 490 years, God is warning, loving, saying, come on, follow me, come back to me, but they wouldn't do it. So the beginning of Daniel chapter one, God keeps his promise. He raises up King Nebuchadnezzar. It would have been an unthinkable thing for the people of God that God would use someone like him for his purposes. But Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he, 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 he takes the city of Jerusalem and then he takes some of the finest young leaders in Jerusalem. This is what Brandon did such a masterful job of teaching on last week. He brought them out of exile and they walked 700 miles from their homeland into the capital of Babylon. That would be like Canada attacking us. Just imagine for a moment, Canada attacking us. Sorry, Morgan, I love you. Um, <laughs> He's from Canada, if you don't know Morgan, but uh, Canada attacking us and then having us walk from Nashville to Toronto, basically. And so they, 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 they take them into captivity. They're there in the province of Babylon. Some of them went into a prisoner of war camp. Some of them were put into service there in the palace. And it was here in chapter one of Daniel where you see the spirit and the tactics of Babylon. Guys, I want you to pay attention to this. Because although the city of Babylon has fallen, the spirit of Babylon has not. And you see the spirit of Babylon at work there in chapter one through three primary strategies. Through the strategy of isolation, indoctrination, and identification. He isolates Daniel and his friends, these teenage boys. He brings them from their home, from their culture, from their community, from their church. He, he isolates them and brings them into a new environment. It's what some of you experienced when you went away for college for the first time. No mom and dad, no small group, no accountability, new city. Have you ever noticed that your faith tends to stumble when you find yourself in isolation? It's the spirit of Babylon. They were in isolation, but not just isolation. The second tactic was indoctrination. It says in chapter one, they spent three years in the school of Babylonian thought. Here's how you think. Here's what you say. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. It's always the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon is to indoctrinate once you've been isolated into the ideology of the day. And then last but not least, it's the work of identification. You remember Brandon spoke on this last week. They tried to rename them because whoever has the power to name has the power to lead. 
And yet Daniel and his teenage friends in Babylon, isolated from friends and family, in the school of indoctrination, in the attempts of being re-identified, they stand strong, and instead of bowing their knee, it says they're raised up in this position of influence. It's an amazing moment. Now from Daniel chapter one to Daniel chapter two, two years go by. And we'll, we'll cover most of this story here in a few weeks, but just to keep us moving with what's happening, two years go by, Daniel's now this leader amongst the wise men and the leaders there in the palace of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream from the Lord one night, doesn't know what to do with it, so he calls in his cabinet leaders, his advisors, his members, and basically says to them, if you can't tell me the dream, thank you, Katie, apparently my voice is sounding rough. <laughs> Feels rough, um, thank you. They call the man and he says, hey, if you can't interpret the dream, then I'm gonna put you to death. So this is a bad day. Not only was Daniel's whole department about to be laid off, they're about to be executed. And Daniel goes, hey, can you just give me a minute? <laughs> can you give me a night to spend some time with the Lord? He'll give me the vision, he'll give me the interpretation. So Daniel does that. And there's this moment in Daniel chapter two where instead of being punished and executed, they're actually promoted into a higher place of authority. And then we come to chapter three. That's where we're gonna be this morning. And here's what you know, between chapter two and chapter three, 18 years go by. So we're no longer just dealing with teenage boys who have just left home, facing isolation, indoctrination, and identification. We're now dealing with men in their mid to late 30s that have been serving the king, that are trying to live well and stand firm in the midst of a culture that's increasingly hostile towards their Jewish roots and their faith. And you get to chapter three, and this morning we're gonna look at one of the most popular stories in the book of Daniel, and one of the most popular stories in the entire Bible, and here's the challenge when you look at something really popular, is we have this tendency to disengage our hearts, and so we're gonna look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This was a story if you grew up in church, you heard it at VBS, even if you didn't grow up in church, chances are you've heard parts of this story before. And I just wanna kind of illuminate a tension that you might feel as we move through the text this morning is that when you come to a story like this, everything about this story is gonna take place in a foreign context. It's a foreign country, Babylon is modern day Iraq. Different sounds, different smells, different leadership structures, different politics, fiery furnace. You're gonna see a, a crazy king with tons of power, with no checks and balances. And here's what I just wanna say, I know you know this, but at no point this week will you be driving through 12 South and see a 90-foot statue of Joe Biden and be asked to bow down to it or else you'll be executed. Like, so you're not gonna read Daniel 3 and go, man, that's exactly what I'm going through. <laughs> it's, a foreign, it's a foreign context. But it's not just a foreign context, it's familiar content. And so some of you are gonna read this and go, oh, I like this story. I remember this story. They get thrown in the fire, but they don't burn. Yes, you know, and, and like some of you love it. And here's the challenge. Anytime you have a foreign context and familiar content, your heart is tempted to put that material into the category of a fairy tale mindset. You just go, okay, oh, I love this one. And if you're not careful, you read Daniel chapter three the same way that you read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, whatever story it is that you go, oh, I love it, it's a foreign land, foreign ways, foreign world, but I know the way this goes and your heart is tempted. But I'm just telling you, Daniel 3 is a historical document of real people in a real place at a real moment in human history feeling real pressure and the Lord wants to give you real wisdom and real strategy for where you find yourself right now. 
And if you're like me, even as we read through this this morning, you're going to have to just combat the whole time that temptation to take this foreign context and familiar content and go with the fairy tale mindset. But I believe God wants to give us something. So Daniel chapter three, we're finally to it, starting in verse one together. Goal this morning is I just want us to notice three, three postures we're gonna have to take as followers of Jesus if we wanna stand firm and love well in a hostile culture. Three postures of faith you're gonna have to have. And then we'll end by just wrestling with the question, if that's the posture of faith we have to have, where do we find the courage to get it? How do we actually do it? Starting in verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so this is 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, this golden image. Just imagine a huge totem pole, you know, just like this huge thing right there in the middle of their province. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And so, you know, most historians believe that Daniel was away on diplomatic assignment. You'll notice Daniel never shows up here in chapter three, but his three buddies from chapter one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all here because at the end of chapter two, they were promoted into this place of power. And so the king sets up this huge image to himself. He brings together all of his leaders, all of his cabinet members, and he says, I want you to show your allegiance to me by worshiping at the foot of this thing that I created. So verse three, so all of the leaders, I'm just gonna kind of summarize here a little bit. So all of the leaders and the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. And then, he, and then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I have no idea what a zither is. It sounds like something out of Dr. Seuss. You know, it's like, what the, Will, can you lead worship with a zither next week? I don't even know what that is. A zither, a lyre, a harp, a pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all of these instruments, all the nations and the people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers, some of his uh, advisory team, they came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the, may the king live forever. Your majesty, you have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of these instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold. Verse 11, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, listen to this, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. Now, if you take notes, here's the first posture I want us to note. If we want to stand firm and love and live well in the midst of a hostile culture, number one, we have to be the types of people who are willing to cultivate a faith that is willing to stand out. You have to cultivate a faith that's willing to stand out. There's this moment where King Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's brought together all of his leaders, all of his people, and he goes, hey, here's the party line. Here's the way that we're gonna go. Here's the way that we're gonna move. Here's what we're going to do together. And the music plays and everybody goes along with it, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they make the decision that in, in an attempt to honor the Lord, they go, hey, we're gonna stand out from the crowd that's around us. Guys, this is so important. You're just gonna see this throughout uh, the, the book of Daniel, over and over and over, 
The spirit behind what was happening in Babylon is the same spirit that you see sweeping the face of the earth, and it is a spirit of conformity. It's the spirit of conformity, and it loves to use fear and pressure in every sphere of society. Here in these first 12 verses, he works through political means, works through peer pressure, works through public images and experiences, but through all of it, the spirit of Babylon was behind one thing, and that was bend your knee, go with the flow, fit in, conform. Guys, I've just been stunned over the last couple of years the way the spirit of Babylon has reared its head across the nations of the earth. Just get in line. Just fit in. Just keep your mouth shut. Believe whatever you wanna believe behind the scenes, but in the public space, this is the line. This is the thing. And I'm just telling you guys, if something in your heart does not begin to to warn you or go off every time you see a message in culture, a message being pushed by fear, a message being pushed by just like, hey, we're all doing it. I'm just telling you, if everybody's doing it, chances are as a follower of Jesus, at the least you should just pause and go, is the Lord in this? What spirit is behind this? If your Christian faith feels completely at home. Hey guys, I love you. I love you so much. I'm saying this with gentleness, but clarity. If your Christian faith feels completely at home in the midst of all of your friends, all of their worldviews, all of their thoughts, and they don't love Jesus, if you feel at home there, you feel just like them, chances are your faith is not as Christian as you think it is. If you never stand out, chances are you've already bowed down. It's a tough reality. It's a real reality, it wouldn't have been easy. We've gotta get this out of like vacation Bible school mindset, oh, it's cool, the the zither went off and they stood up. No, they found themselves in the crucible of cultural pressure of feeling isolated, feeling like weirdos and the spirit of Babylon says, just go with the flow and the spirit of Christ says, no, you were made to stand out. Think about some of our good friends, you know, earlier this spring, one of our boys had a baseball game that got delayed because the games were running behind schedule and we're just all standing there with a group of parents and just having this conversation about a bunch of nothingness, just trying to pass the time until the baseball game began. And so one of the parents asked everybody in the group, oh, have you seen this show? And they mentioned this show. And one of the guys in the group said, no, I haven't seen it. And then they went on to another show, have you seen this one? And at some point they'd mentioned two or three shows that this one guy in the group had not seen. And they said, have you seen anything? And he goes, well, honestly, my wife and I, about 15 years ago, we got rid of our TV because we decided we did not want to just come into our house at night and to just revolve around this glowing box of just garbage. And that's when the conversation got real uncomfortable. (laughs) Everybody's like, oh, okay. He said it a little more tactfully than that. But that was the essence of it. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, why why are you doing that? Like, what's going on? And and he said, well, just being candid, he, he said, we're trying to develop a mindset that revolves around the person of Jesus, and that just wasn't really helping us do that. And then the conversation got super weird. Some of the people in the group were like, well, we're Christians, we have TV. It's like, oh, that's not the point, <laughs> this is the point. So after it was over, um, after we got out of that awkward moment, I just said, hey, you okay? How you feeling? How'd that go? And he said, my wife and I, we're asking the Spirit of God to teach us how to get more comfortable with being weird. He says, because the truth is we believe it's gonna become a needed skill in the days ahead. 
And if we need everybody to like us, we might not be able to stand true to Jesus and be helpful to them. It's just so true. There's this moment where they find themselves in the crucible of cultural pressure, where they're not just seen as admirable or weird, but harmful. And they have to just say, like, like, hey, are we willing to stand out and, and be uncomfortable? And this is the training ground for the days ahead, for followers of Jesus. It's one of the things that you see, but it's not just about, about cultivating a faith that stands out. Keep going with me. Look at verse 13. It says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage, so he summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Men were brought before the king, and then Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, all of these instruments, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. I love verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. For the moment that we find ourselves in, if we wanna stand firm and live well in an increasingly hostile culture, it's not just about cultivating a faith that stands out, it's about cultivating a faith that stands up. And so there's this moment where they're no longer just living this peculiar, strange life that their coworkers take note of. All of a sudden, they're brought into the boardroom, they're face to face with the one that had come against them in the first place. And he's doing that thing that we see happen in our culture all the time where a Christian shares their opinions. It doesn't go well for the company. So the company brings the Christian in and says, hey, would you like to make a PR statement about how sorry you are for being insensitive? Have you guys seen this happen before? And the Christian gets on the news and is like, I'm so sorry that my Christian faith was offensive. And, you know, and, and they're doing the thing. And so there's this moment where they're brought in and they're given like this shot. Hey, do you want, you want to keep standing out? You want to keep standing out? And and I love this, they go, no, we think we're gonna stand up. We think we're gonna stand up. In a world that's bowing down, I'm just telling you, there's going to be moments when you are going to have to stand up. I just love you enough to say, you cannot live in the mushy middle for all of your Christian existence. At some point, you're gonna have to take a stand on something that won't go well with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. At some point, to be faithful to Jesus in a world that is bowing down, you're gonna have to cultivate a faith that can stand up. But I love this because they don't do it with like this, this cultural angst. <laughs> like they don't go, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're stepping all over my rights. They don't flip Nebuchadnezzar the bird and yell at him and you know, just like call for anarchy. I love what they do. They say, hey, we don't have to defend ourselves. The Lord can do it. The Lord can do it. And we think he will do it. We think he will do it. And even if he doesn't do it, he's still the Lord. And we're still gonna stand up because here's what they did. Here's what they knew. They knew that their faith was not built on a certain outcome. Their faith was marked on a living God. And whether he responded the way they wanted him to or not, they knew that he was God. And at the end of the day, that they feared and worshiped and loved and served him alone. Guys, I'm just telling you, if you need everybody to like you in order for you to be a happy person, you will not be able to follow Jesus very far. And so we cultivate a faith that stands out at times, 
the cultivate a faith that stands up when confronted with things that go against the ways of the Lord. See, this is the, one of the lies of Babylon. One of the lies of Babylon is that it's okay for you to have your faith as long as your faith doesn't make waves in the public spheres. The Babylonians were fine with God's people worshiping their God as long as them worshiping God did not step on the laws of the land. But at some point, you have to decide, are the laws of the land or the laws of the Lord the laws that you submit your heart to? And there will be moments when those two things cannot swim in the same direction, cannot be congruent with one another. Think about a young woman in our church last year, she was up for a job promotion. The job she wanted for a long time, had earned, had worked for. And she came to a few of us, she said, I have this feeling that when I get into the final part of the interview, they're gonna ask me some questions about my personal faith because my faith is at odds with what's happening in the culture of this place. And do you think I should just come out and say it? What's my posture? What should we say? And should I be subtle or not? And we just said, hey, you really need to bring it before the Lord. But my sense is if they ask you clearly, you share it clearly and you leave the results in God's hands. So we prayed about it and there's a moment where she crushed the interview and then after the interview, there's always the interview after the interview, right? Where you're walking to the car and they said, hey, there's just one more thing we wanna ask you about. So we know you're a Christian and your views on this and this and this and this and this. Um, what happens in the context of our company when we're doing this, do these things line up? And there's this moment where she had to decide, does she bow a knee or does she stand up, stand firm, love well, live well for the sake of those that are around her? And she just said clearly, here's what I believe. And, you know, she didn't get the job. And the truth is, there's just these moments where we have to come to grips with being salt and being light is not just standing out. Sometimes it's standing up and sometimes it's not always wanted. You are needed, but you're not always wanted. But God's in the midst of it. The story doesn't end there. It's not just standing out. It's not just standing up. Look at verse 19. So then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. So he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers to tie them up and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who threw them in. Verse 23, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. There's times when you need a faith that stands out, a faith that stands up, and there's times when you need a faith that's willing to stand in. If you keep walking with Jesus, there's gonna be a moment when you're gonna have to stand in the fire. The fire's gonna look different for all of us. And sometimes the Lord delivers you from the fire. You don't have to go through it. Sometimes the Lord delivers you through the fire. There's something about the refining process of the fire. And sometimes like this story, he delivers you in the fire. But the reality is faithfulness to Jesus is marked by the road to the fire. There's gonna be fire. It'll come in different times. It'll come in different ways. But unless you resolve in your heart that you will not bow your knee to the spirit of Babylon, when the fire comes, you will cave. You have to decide beforehand. You have to go in. This is who I am. This is who God has made me to be. This is what I've been put on earth for. And I don't have to defend myself because the one who is my defender will deliver me in it or from it or through it. But in all of it, he will be praised and they will see him high and lifted up.
Think about the story of the German church during Nazi Germany. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories is a story of, of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For the most part, the German church during the days of Nazi Germany had been co-opted by the spirit of Babylon. They had come to believe that they could have a privatized, faithful faith and ignore what was happening in the culture all around them. And some of you know these stories that literally the church would be gathered to meet and the trains would be driving by the churches on Sunday mornings filled with Jewish people being trafficked to their death in the concentration camps. And as the trains were roaring and the people were screaming, some of the German churches would gather and would sing more loudly so they didn't have to hear the cries of the people. It's the spirit of Babylon that says, you can be faithful in here and then go out there and ignore everything else. But there's a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is actually in the States at the time studying theology, hearing about what was happening amongst the German Christians, and he felt called by God to go back, and he knew he wasn't just called to stand out or to stand up, but that he would have to stand in, and because of his views and because of his advocacy and because of his action for the injustice that was unfolding all around him, there was a moment where he had to stand in the fire, and it cost him his life. And guys, this is true for followers of Jesus, all across America, every week, I'm having conversations with our church planters that are quite literally facing the fire, but we read it in North America. And because it's so foreign and so crazy, we have to be really careful that we don't jump to conclusions that are false conclusions where we go, oh, this will never happen here. Or where we go to the other side and we go, oh man, I know what the fiery furnace is like. I posted a scripture on Instagram this week and somebody gave me a thumbs down emoji. I know what it's like to be in the furnace. <laughs> Guys, I believe a day is coming for many of us in our lifetime where it won't just be standing out or standing up, it'll be standing in. And right now, a lot of us, we're being trained in the school with Christ of life, how to stand up and how to stand out. But if you don't begin resolving now in your heart to be a person that'll stand in when the fire comes, you'll be tempted to bow down. And I don't know how else to say it other than tr just trusting that the Holy Spirit will take this story and will just illuminate the realness of it in your heart. So the posture of faith of a, of a follower of Jesus, standing firm and loving well in a hostile world. It's like, hey man, God, we, we wanna be peculiar. We wanna stand out. We wanna, we wanna stand up when the moment comes. And even if it so be, we, we, we wanna stand in the fire. But here's the question. Where in the world do you find the courage for a faith like this? Like, like where, where do you find the courage for a faith like this? Is it like, okay, do 10 hours of Bible study in the morning? Is it, I mean, that'd help, it would actually. Is it read the voice of the martyrs, that'd help? But like, like, where do you find the courage to stand out, stand up, stand in the midst of the fire? I think the clue to that is in the final part of this story. We'll end like this, look at verse 24. It says, in King Nebuchadnezzar, he leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we threw into the fire? They replied, why, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men, though, walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. Listen to this. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire 
And all of the rulers crowded around them and they saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed, nor their robes were scorched. I love this. And there was not even the smell of smoke on them. I mean, if you make s'mores in your backyard, you have to wash your clothes for like three weeks. You know, it's just like whole house reeks. Like they're in the furnace. Not only did they survive the fire, don't even smell like smoke. Verse 28, the Nebuchadnezzar said to them, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against this God must be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save this way. So Nebuchadnezzar was clearly not a Christian yet. Um, <laughs> it's like, what do we do in response? Murder everybody else, knock their houses down. Verse 30, and then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Back to this question, where do we find the strength and the courage to stand up, stand in, and stand out? Where do you find it? Where do you find it? Verse 25 is the clue. Look back at verse 25. I see four men walking in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. This is what's called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before the incarnation where Jesus shows up to his people. And here he shows up in the fire. I go, where do you find the strength to stand out, to stand up and to stand in? You find the strength when you know who's standing with you. That's it. Where you know who's standing with you. And only when you know who's standing with you do you have the courage to stand out and to stand up and stand in. Only when the, the recognition of God's realness is stronger than the thing that you're facing at work or in the neighborhood. Or only when the realness of the Lord is better. I love this moment in Matthew 10. It's a scripture that we love to skip over because it doesn't sit well in our American culture. Guys, go home and read Matthew 10 today. His, the disciples of Jesus were under great pressure. And he looks at them and he says, hey, don't be scared of people that can hurt you and kill you. This is my paraphrase, but go read Matthew 10. He goes, don't be scared of people that can hurt you and kill you. And it's like, okay, cool, don't be scared. But then he goes on to tell them how. He goes, you should be scared of your father who has the ability to throw your body and your soul in hell forever. He goes, that's who you should be scared of. It'd be like your kid having a nightmare at night and you walk in and say, don't be scared of the guy under the bed. Be scared of me. <laughs> like, you know, it's like... It feels like a terrible tactic, but Jesus is brilliant. And he's going, until the fear of the Lord seizes your heart, you will fear everybody else. Until you realize the realness of one day, you will get off this little spinning mud ball of a planet and you will stand before the living God and he will not be impressed that you were a CEO at 38 years old. You won't come before him with all of your credentials. You will come before the living God and you will cling to the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And you go, it is Christ alone. And only when you know who is standing with you do you have the power to stand out, stand up, and stand in the fire of life. And guys, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, I'm just telling you, in the culture moment we find ourselves in, you're more needed than ever. I'm not sure you're wanted. It doesn't matter. The Lord has told you what you're made for. And this is the season. This is the season to cultivate a life that is marked by the withness of Jesus. You don't have to look for the moment. When do I stand up? When do I stand out? What do I, no, no. 
Stand with Jesus. Worship Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Love Jesus. Honor Jesus. 10 times in this one chapter, worship is mentioned. Don't be confused. The spirit of Babylon is always after your worship. And this is the season to develop a life that is marked by the witness of the Christ who shows up with you in the fire. It's the time to get up early. It's the time to get into scriptures. It's the time to pray. It's the time to build community. It's the time, it's the time, it's the time. Because when the fire comes, when the fire comes, that's not the moment to get ready. So for you, those of you that are followers of Jesus, you were made for this. You were needed in moments like this. And it's the time for developing a life that's marked by the witness of Jesus. There's some of you here this morning, you're not followers of Jesus. Guys, I love you. I just wanna say this as plainly as I know how. If you're not with Christ, you will go through the fires of this life and you'll go through the fires of the life to come forever and ever and ever and ever. And I say that with no joy. It's just the reality But Christ came and he lived a sinless life. He died a sinner's death. He raised on the third day. He is seated at the right hand of God and he will return again to judge the living and the dead. And if you stand with him now, you will not have to stand in the fire later. And this was the hope of the saints in Hebrews 11. It says some of them get out of the fire, some of them didn't, but their hope was in what was to come. And that was that Christ was with them. This was the hope of Stephen in Acts 7 when he's getting uh, persecuted. It says that the heavens are open and he looks up and every other time in the New Testament, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But in Acts 7, Jesus is standing on his feet, just clapping for Stephen. He's like, I see you. And this is what Jesus promised in Matthew 10. He says, if you acknowledge me, I acknowledge you. If you deny me, I deny you. You're needed. And some of you, this is your morning. This is your day of salvation. Don't let the invitation miss you. If you wanna, if you have questions about your walk with Jesus, there'll be some men and women at the Respond Manor. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. You can get baptized today, filled with the Spirit of God today, forgiven today. And then meet the God that's with you in the fire. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. I wanna pray a blessing over us. That God would just unleash a desire for intimacy with Jesus, for witness with Jesus, and that whatever comes, you'd have the courage to stand. And so Jesus, I love you. Thank you that you speak so plainly and you show us so clearly what's to come and how to prepare. God, would you fill our our lamps with the oil of intimacy, the oil of gladness of knowing you and walking with you? Would you pour out your, your presence upon us? Would you give us a hunger to know you? Would you help us to cultivate a life with you And then whenever comes, God, help us to stand up, stand out, stand strong as needed. God, would you help us to live as salt in life, to be a blessing, no matter whether we're wanted or not, God, help us to glorify you and be a blessing to those that are around us. God, for every person this morning that is sitting in the weight of not knowing you, God, would you just bring them to life in Christ? Jesus, would you save them, regenerate them, call them to yourself and let them take steps of obedience towards you? So in the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen. Hey, love you. We're gonna just end our last few minutes together receiving communion. Circle up your chairs, talk, pray, confess sin. If you wanna receive prayer, there's men and women that respond to that'd love to pray with you. And then we'll end with just a song or two of worship and praise. So let's come and receive communion. Let's pray together. Love you guys very much.